Hello, I'm Phil Gibson, and welcome to Biota. This is the final episode of the first season, so I want to bring things to conclusion by taking one more look at the science of viruses, the diseases they cause, and how that can inform the decisions we make about the SARS-CoV-2 virus now. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused a lot of changes in pretty much every aspect of our lives. One way in particular is the vocabulary we use. A year ago, you never heard things like social distancing, super spreader event, masking, or even coronavirus in a normal conversation. Other words that might have been used a little bit more occasionally, words like sanitize, quarantine, and contagious, they've suddenly become a much bigger part of the conversation. But of all the terms I've heard used, one in particular has always caught my attention, and that word is unprecedented. I'll admit that a whole lot of things going on right now are astonishingly different from what was once considered normal. But are they unprecedented? Some things are, to be sure, but others maybe not so much. To figure out what aspects of our current situation are truly unprecedented, we need to take a look at similar situations from the past and make a comparison. Say, for example, another pandemic caused by a respiratory disease. Let's finish out this season of Biota by comparing the COVID-19 pandemic with one that struck just a little over 100 years ago, one that killed millions and brought the world to a standstill, but also led to a tremendous effort from the scientific community that was truly unprecedented. So let's take a look at the 1918 influenza pandemic to understand what happened, how people responded, and what scientists have learned about not just the flu, but what made that particular strain so incredibly lethal. By doing this, we might be able to find tools that can help us with our current pandemic problems and maybe even prepare us for the pandemics that will most certainly occur in the future. The year 1918 was off to a rough start. World War I had been raging in Europe for four years, and in 1917, the United States had finally joined the fight. The war was horrific. Battles lasted for weeks or months along battlefronts hundreds of miles long. Armies on both sides unleashed tools of mechanized terror whose sole purpose was to kill more people faster. New weapons like the machine gun, mustard gas, or Big Bertha, one of the massive cannons of the war, they did just that. They pushed the number of military and civilian casualties to new highs. In his book Storm of Steel, German soldier Ernst Jünger described the unprecedented horror of this new type of warfare, and it's a book that's definitely worth reading. To expand its fighting force, the United States government built new training camps across the country to accommodate the thousands of young men who joined the ranks of the enlisted. Sometimes the new recruits lived in wooden barracks, other times in canvas tents. Lodging soon filled beyond their intended capacity as soldiers poured in. Conditions didn't get any better after basic training. Soldiers exchanged the overfull barracks for packed railroad cars, and then onto crowded troop ships bound for Europe. Those who made it to the trenches found themselves surrounded by both the living and the dead in conditions so desperate that basic hygiene wasn't even a possibility. Meanwhile, outbreaks of severe influenza and pneumonia were occurring with increasing frequency at U.S. military bases in March and April of 1918. The flu, or as it was known then, the grip, was a fairly common disease and nothing particularly serious, especially when you compared it to other illnesses like polio or yellow fever. But doctors and nurses treating sick patients in military infirmaries and other locations quickly noticed that they had something different on their hands. Sometimes patients recovered, but sometimes they didn't. Sometimes the flu turned into deadly pneumonia, and more often than not, the victims seemed to be previously healthy young adults. Let me read an account by a doctor at Camp Devins in Massachusetts writing to a friend who was also a physician. Quote, These men start with what appears to be an attack of la grippe or influenza, 
and when brought to the hospital, they very rapidly develop the most viscous type of pneumonia that has ever been seen. Two hours after admission, they have the mahogany spots all over the cheekbones, and a few hours later, you can begin to see the cyanosis extending from their ears and spreading all over the face. He continues a little bit later. It is only a matter of a few hours until death comes, and it is simply a struggle for air until they suffocate. It is horrible. End quote. This new influenza didn't stay confined to military bases in the U.S. This new flu raced around the globe as it went from local outbreaks to a global pandemic. American troops took it with them when they shipped out to Europe. In April, the flu was first reported in Brest and Bordeaux. By May, it was in Britain, Italy, Spain, and North Africa. The German military quietly reported the spread of the disease among their troops on the Western Front in June. By July, it was in Russia, Asia, and the Philippines. And by September, it was wreaking havoc in Australia. It circled the world in less than a year. When the pandemic was finally over, this flu had infected half the world's population. That's at least 500 million people sick, with over 50 million deaths. That's almost three times more people than were killed in all of World War I. There were 675,000 deaths in the U.S. alone. In some places, the flu killed 25% of the local population, many of them 20 to 40 years old. That's a big difference from how flu normally affected the very young and old. While malnutrition and poor living conditions during the war surely played a part in the severity of this pandemic, it was a particularly lethal strain of flu that was primarily to blame. The world would never again consider flu to be just a simple nuisance disease. Okay, time for a quick side trip about disease names. The 1918 flu pandemic had many names. People named it after whoever they viewed as their enemy in some instances. But the one name that really stuck for this disease was the Spanish flu. This disease did not come from Spain, didn't start there at all. There is nothing Spanish about it. There were no cases reported in Spain until May of 1918, a good two to three months after the first cases were reported in the United States. So why was it named the Spanish flu? The answer is censorship. During World War I, neither side wanted to report anything about the disease, including the number of soldiers and civilians who were sick. As far as world governments, including the United States, were concerned, this was a matter of national security. Spain, however, was not a combatant in World War I, so their press reported on the pandemic and its death toll while the warring nations said nothing. This gave the false impression that the disease started in and was ravaging Spain like in no other place, hence the name Spanish Flu. This unfortunate moniker led to discrimination and bigotry aimed at Spain and the Spanish people. Since then, epidemiologists and public health workers have recognized the unfair stigmatization that comes with linking diseases to place names and how it does nothing but hinder progress against the disease. These days, rather than place names, we use names that reflect the genetic lineage of the virus. The flu strain that caused the 1918 pandemic is properly known as AH1N1. Now, while that name may not mean a lot to the average person, it does contain important information about the virus, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. All right, let's return to our main topic and ask ourselves this. What exactly is influenza? What have we learned about it since 1918? Well, influenza is a contagious respiratory disease caused by a virus. It was thought to be caused by a bacterium until the virus was identified in 1931. It spreads in small droplets when we exhale, cough, sneeze, or talk. Ever since the 1918 pandemic, health departments and other agencies carefully record and track the occurrence of flu, which typically shows seasonal outbreaks in the late fall and winter. 
Symptoms are highly consistent for most cases, fever, muscle aches and pains, and fatigue. But the virus itself evolves and changes rapidly, leading one researcher to describe it as, quote, an invariable disease caused by a variable virus, end quote. It is this variability that makes the influenza virus so tricky. The virus is made up of eight gene segments or subunits that code for 12 proteins. Of particular importance is the genetic subunit for production of the hemagglutinin and surface protein referred to as the HA protein, and also the subunit for the neuraminidase protein called NA. These proteins sit on the surface of the virus. You can think of them almost like little keys. When the virus finds a potential host cell, it tries to unlock the host cell surface protein. If the virus key fits, it unlocks the host cell, slips inside, and takes over. It's like how the SARS-CoV-2 viruses uses the coronavirus spike proteins to invade cells. It's these virus surface proteins, or antigens, that our immune system produces antibodies against. Remember when I said that the AH1N1 is the scientifically accurate name for the virus that caused the 1918 pandemic? The A indicates a particular influenza virus group that infects humans. It's the only one that causes influenza pandemics. H1 refers to one of the 18 different subtypes of hemagglutinin subunits, while the N1 refers to one of the 11 different neuraminidase subtypes. Another virus that affects humans, AH3N2, is in the same subgroup, but has a different combination of H and N genetic subunits. Of the 198 possible combinations, only 131 have been found in nature. The different subunit combinations vary in their effects on different hosts, and they influence whether or not the virus can infect different species. The genetic code in the regions for the HA and NA surface proteins mutates frequently as a natural byproduct of replication. Every time the virus copies itself, there's a chance that a mistake or mutation gets made. The subunits change as the virus evolves. If the virus changes enough, the body's immune system won't recognize it and won't be able to fight it off as easily. This gradual process of mutation is called antigenic drift, and it's the reason we have to develop a new vaccine and get a flu shot each year. This is an important characteristic that differs among viruses. Ones that don't evolve rapidly, or viruses that our body's immune system remembers, can be dealt with through a single or a few vaccinations. Those that evolve rapidly, though, or who don't trigger long-term immune responses, they require more frequent vaccination boosters for protection. So just a reminder, if you can, get your flu shot. Immunization is a proven way to keep you from getting sick and get a population to a level of herd immunity. Like I talked about in a previous episode, herd immunity through vaccination saves lives by preventing outbreaks and protects those that can't be immunized. And besides, a flu outbreak is one of the last things we need right now. But in 1918, there was no vaccine. The only way to treat the flu then was to just help nurse the sick through the coughing, chills, aches, and fever. Flu's been part of the human experience for thousands of years. Although it is difficult to know with 100% certainty, historical evidence from the Greeks suggests that the oldest recorded epidemic flu outbreak may have occurred around 412 BCE. Several well-documented influenza outbreaks occurred in the Americas and Europe during the 18th and early 19th century. In those outbreaks, it was just like the 1918 pandemic. There was really nothing they could do medically to stop the disease. Without vaccines or other pharmaceutical defenses, the public had to just join together and take steps to control the disease. One thing, wear a mask. Let me read a passage from a letter by Private Werner M. Sackett writing from Germany to his family back home on December 20, 1918. 
quote. I am away from the company at present, watching a prisoner in the hospital here. He is charged with treason, and we must not let him escape. His ailment is the influenza, so we have to do our shifts in this ward with the rest of the patients in order to keep an eye on him at all times. We have to wear a little gauze mask all the time we're in the room, which protects us from the disease. End quote. Here's another one from a Western Union telegram sent from the Honorable Edward Rainey in the San Francisco Mayor's Office to the Honorable Harvey Nielsen in the Santa Barbara Mayor's Office on October 31, 1918. Quote, If you have not already taken such steps, strongly urge universal wearing of masks to prevent or check influenza epidemic. Cases here rose steadily from 200 per day October 6 to over 2,000 October 25th. On 20th, some of our people wore masks. On 21st, on recommendation from Health Board, Mayor Rolf issued proclamation calling for everybody wearing masks. Nearly whole population complied. Red Cross backed with advertising, and two days later, supervisors passed ordinance requiring wearing by all persons. Practically whole population in masks. By 23rd, five days after first masks appeared, or three days after use became general, new cases dropped approximately 50%. Deaths at peak, 194 Yesterday, only 103, many of these having been sick for some days. New cases decreasing daily. Health authorities say San Francisco probably get through with far less distress and death than eastern cities, which started with about our figures, but keep on going up while ours went down. All agree, masks largely responsible. Sending this for your information because I have seen the whole terrible effect of epidemic here, because masks have saved untold suffering and many deaths. End quote. There are other letters from physicians to their colleagues that convey pretty much the same thing. In the absence of other preventative measures, masks are an effective tool to control spread of respiratory diseases. Some of the iconic photographs from the pandemic show people wearing masks everywhere. People wearing a mask to do their part for the larger good of responsible public hygiene. Now, what about quarantines, shutdowns, and lockdowns? Captains of troop ships began holding their ships at sea for several days before docking at their ports to allow the flu outbreaks to subside on their ships. But there were other quarantine events that affected daily life on the home front. For example, here is a letter dated October 6, 1918 from Albert Harbolt to his mother. Quote, The university is under quarantine now and no one is allowed in or out without a pass. We probably would have left here this week if it was not for the quarantine. A good many of the boys from Ironton are either sick or in the hospital. P.S. Watch so none of you get the disease. It is dangerous. End quote. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Other restrictions were also implemented across the country. Worship services, concerts, theater performances, public gatherings were limited or banned altogether. And where this was done, the local outbreak subsided. People learned what happens when you don't limit gatherings. For example, early in the pandemic, there were fundraising parades in many large cities where soldiers, fresh from training camps, they'd march down the streets packed with people. Doctors, hospitals, and public health offices reported high numbers of influenza and pneumonia a few days later. So eventually, they stopped having these parades. Today, we would call these super spreader events. Now, since we're talking about quarantines, let's take a minute to remember an entire village that voluntarily chose to quarantine themselves, fully knowing the high price they would pay in order to stop a disease from spreading. In September 1665, the village of Iam in England became infected with the plague through a bolt of flea-infested cloth. Wanting to keep the disease from spreading to the local villages of Sheffield and Bakewell, the entire village decided to quarantine. They closed their village to entry and exit, 
allowing only careful trade with local towns who carried out what we now call contact-free delivery. Purchases took place on certain rocks at the village boundary, following very specific steps to clean both money and goods. But the people of Iam lived alone. They worshipped alone or occasionally in widely spaced outdoor services. Families also buried their dead alone. 78% of the 350 townspeople would die, but their decision to quarantine would save countless others. It wasn't until 1933 that the human influenza was isolated in a laboratory. In the 1940s, the first mass-produced vaccines were developed that used inactivated virus. Advances in epidemiology and molecular biology have improved the annual vaccines, and continued work in molecular genetics is paving the way for development of new influenza vaccines that may, someday, provide even longer-term protection. As we learn more about how the influenza virus and our immune systems work, we can develop tools to protect against the next pandemic. And that's what takes us to Alaska and a place called Brevig Mission. In 1997, 72-year-old Dr. Johan Hulton stood at the site of a mass grave in Brevig Mission, Alaska. He had been here once before. That attempt failed, and yet here he was again, trying to do the unthinkable. Science had changed a lot since 1951, New techniques and methods for analysis had been developed, and Dr. Hulton had returned to try one more time. Once again, he asked for and received permission from the village elders, including three survivors of the 1918 pandemic, to collect human tissue from the mass grave that contained the bodies of 72 Inupiat. 90% of the village had died from influenza in less than a week back in 1918. 79 years later, Professor Holton returned as part of a collaborative team that included Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberg, a scientist who recently had some success studying the genetics of the 1918 influenza virus from preserved tissues. Taubenberger and others on the research team wanted to answer two questions. First, what made the 1918 strain so incredibly lethal? And second, where did it come from? The researchers dug and found the frozen body of a young Inuit woman. The combination of body fat and depth of burial had preserved her lungs. Carefully, they removed her lungs and took them to the Taubenberger lab. After about two weeks of work in the lab, the team confirmed that they had successfully extracted the viral genome from the tissue samples. Work comparing the Brevig mission sample with other bits and pieces from other preserved specimens, that began to show that it was likely a mutation in the HA region and elsewhere that likely played a role in creating this particularly lethal strain. But to fully understand how this virus worked, they needed to study the other seven subunits, which the team did before moving on to the very last step. Now that they had the separate parts, it was time to assemble the monster. A highly trained influenza expert and specialist in poultry diseases, Dr. Terence Trumpy, was chosen for the mission. And I choose the word mission specifically because it's the only way to encapsulate the level of risk, security, skill, and preparation required to do what they had to do. There were many contingencies in place in case something went wrong. Everyone involved was well aware of the risks and the responsibilities they had, not only to Dr. Trumpy and each other, but to the entire human population. In 2005, they got the answer to their first question. The reassembled virus replicated with astonishing speed. After just four days, this pandemic strain produced 39,000 times more viral particles than the typical flu virus does. And not only that, this virus didn't just infect the lung tissues, it destroyed it, infecting multiple types of cells in the lungs and other parts of the respiratory system. Further studies revealed another surprise. 
it wasn't any one of the subunits that was particularly lethal in and of itself. Two subunits, HA for the surface protein and another called PB1 that controls the virus's ability to copy itself, well, they have mutations that enhance their function. But when they combined the 1918 subunits with subunits from other influenza strains, the disease it produced wasn't especially bad. It was only when these specific eight subunits were combined, each with its own unique combination of mutations, that the disease was highly lethal. The expert team of pathologists, virologists, and epidemiologists had one more question to answer. Where did it come from? To answer this, they compared the genetic sequence of the 1918 influenza virus to other common strains circulating in the human population. They also compared it to strains of avian and swine flus, since both birds and pigs are known reservoirs for different influenza viruses. They knew that the virus had to be passed down from its ancestors as it passed from one infected host to the next. Because of this, they could apply evolutionary analysis techniques to compare gene sequences among different influenza virus strains, revealing the family tree for this virus, so to speak. For years, it had been thought that the 1918 influenza originated with birds. However, initial genetic analyses found genetic markers more characteristic of adaptations to a mammalian host rather than an avian host. This suggested a zoonotic disease that jumped from swine to humans. Still, other markers indicated a recent avian flu origin. After additional studies, the research team eventually concluded that this viral strain probably jumped from birds to swine and then somehow mutated into the highly lethal strain that killed 50 million people. A phenomenon called antigenic shift probably occurred in which rapid exchange of genetic material among different types of viruses created new HA or NA subunit combinations. Remember back at the beginning when we said that type A influenza viruses are the only ones that cause pandemics? That's because they're the only influenza viruses that experience both antigenic drift and antigenic shift, and this allows them to change into something our immune systems aren't prepared to fight. So in 1918, they had a virus that they'd never seen before that replicated extraordinarily quickly. We know that much for sure. But there's still one unanswered part of the story. Where did this strain come from? Where did it start? Historian John Barry has an idea that seems to be very likely. The first officially documented case of the 1918 pandemic influenza was a cook at Camp Funston at Fort Riley in Kansas. On March 4th, Private Albert Gitchell was admitted to the Camp Funston Infirmary and was diagnosed with the first recorded case of influenza in the pandemic. Other soldiers were soon admitted with the same symptoms. Private Gitchell wasn't the hypothetical patient zero who starts a pandemic. He was just the first one to receive that diagnosis. But how did he come down with this flu? This is where Barry's investigations offer an answer to that question. Earlier in 1918, a country doctor in Haskell County, Kansas named Loring Minor reported to the U.S. Public Health Service that there was a noticeable amount of unusual influenza and pneumonia activity in his area during the first part of the year. Influenza wasn't a disease that physicians reported back then, but something about what Dr. Minor was seeing in his patients was different. And it wasn't just him either. The local newspaper even noted that many people were coming down with severe respiratory illnesses. And they stated, quote, most everybody over the county is having la grip or pneumonia, end quote. In late February, three men from Haskell County reported to Camp Funston to begin their training. Within two weeks, 1,100 soldiers at Camp Funston were sick with severe influenza. 
Soldiers departed Camp Funston and Fort Riley for other destinations during those two weeks, and, and they carried this novel influenza virus with them. Soon, outbreaks were reported in 24 of the 36 large military training bases. Ships were reporting high numbers of sick troops. Soldiers were carrying the disease with them to the battlefields in Europe. But why Haskell County? Now, this part is a little controversial, and some have even discounted Barry's theory. But I think he's right. Why? Because ecology. Haskell County is in the southwestern part of Kansas. If you look at different wildlife maps, you see that it lies within the central flyway, one of the major migratory routes that many birds use as they travel between their seasonal ranges in North and South America. And these migratory birds include ducks, geese, and other types of waterfowl that are known natural reservoirs for different types of avian influenza. It's a classic zoonotic disease scenario. Thousands of waterfowl and the diseases they carry move through this area every year. In 1918, just like today, that part of the world contains ponds, rivers, wetlands, and many farms with livestock. It wouldn't be difficult for a virus in one of these migrating birds to infect domesticated poultry. Next, the virus could somehow jump to pigs, another reservoir for influenza viruses. Genetic analyses of AH1N1 indicate that the virus was changing, circulating, evolving for some period of time between 1900 and 1915 before the lethal genetic combination came together. And then, at some point, perhaps someone hunting, tending their poultry, or feeding their hogs picked up this virus. And well, the rest, as they say, is history. So that's at least part of the story of influenza in the 1918 pandemic. If that piqued your interest, I urge you to read America's Forgotten Pandemic by Alfred Crosby or The Great Influenza by John Barry. And definitely check out the information regarding the 1918 influenza strain on the CDC website. But before I bring this to an end, let me highlight what I hope you got from this story about the 1918 influenza pandemic. Because, although influenza and COVID-19 are very different diseases, there are some similarities that have lessons for us now. First of all, diseases and pandemics are part of life that continue to shape the history and evolution of our species. I'm not saying that because diseases are part of life that the current SARS-CoV-2 isn't something to be concerned about. Far from it. My point is that we know these things happen and they've shaped who we are as a species. But just as in previous pandemics, if we use our intelligence and the tools we have available wisely and don't give in to misinformation and fear, we will prevail. Second, controlling an emerging disease almost always begins with improved personal and public hygiene. Part of what made the 1918 pandemic so horrific was the poor state of public health, poverty, and nutrition. The same problems have driven other pandemics. However, once people take steps to change those conditions, wearing masks, social distancing, and quarantining when necessary can help slow the spread of disease until more effective treatments and cures can be developed. So, after considering all of this, is there anything unprecedented about our current situation as we continue to live with a pandemic that is currently raging in the U.S. To that, I can say yes. There is one thing, and it's an important thing, perhaps the most important of all. In response to this pandemic, there has been an unprecedented scientific effort to understand this disease and bring it under control. I am amazed at the advances in vaccines and other technologies that are being used to bring this pandemic to an end. It took almost 20 years to isolate the influenza virus, almost a decade to develop the first vaccines, and several decades more to finally sequence its genome. 
But within weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic being confirmed, the virus genome was sequenced, and now it appears that the first vaccines are going to be available in the near future. New therapies and drugs are not like the old vaccines. These are cutting-edge molecular medicine. So although we most likely have some rough days ahead still, let's try to do what our ancestors have done before us. Let's learn from the past. Let's do all that we can to support good science and use the scientific tools we have available. Let's do what we can to support one another so we can get through this together. While the coronavirus is novel, coming together to solve problems is not. Maybe if we start putting our efforts towards solving problems together and letting evidence-based science guide the way, we will soon be talking about the lessons we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic so that we're more prepared for the next pandemic. And that, my friends, would be truly unprecedented. I'm Phil Gibson, and this has been Biota. For this episode, Terry Gibson once again provided outstanding contributions to episode development, writing, and editing. I also want to acknowledge and send a huge thank you to Veronica Bryant, the artist who designed our Biota logo. Thanks also go to Ned, Rob, Maggie, Pete, Courtney, Beth, Fred, Claire, Amy, Addison, Kristen, Drew, Shade, Worry, Vicky, Skip, Bruiser, Bob, James, and Daryl for their guidance and inspiration along the way. And of course, thanks to the students in 1134 who joined me on this journey. We're going to take some time off for the holidays and maybe try to pull together some type of special end of year episode if we can. And we will definitely be back with season two in January, 2021. So from the entire team here at Under the Juniper Studios, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. All opinions expressed in this episode are those of the authors alone. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. Thank you.